Guten Morgen, good morning. Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. I will be reading in German. The English translation is there. Wenn die einen unter euch sagen, wir gehören zu Paulus und andere wir halten uns an Apollos, dann benehmt ihr euch, als hätte Christus euch nicht zu neuen Menschen gemacht. Wer ist denn schon Apollos oder Paulus, dass ihr euch deshalb streitet? Wir sind doch nur Diener Gottes, durch die ihr zum Glauben gefunden habt. Jeder von uns hat lediglich getan, was ihm von Gott aufgetragen wurde. Ich habe gepflanzt, Apollos hat begossen, aber Gott hat das Wachstum geschenkt. Es ist nicht so wichtig, wer gepflanzt oder wer gewiesst. Wichtig ist allein Gott, der für was Wachstum sorgt. Von Gottes Mitarbeitern ist einer so notwendig wie die andere. Ob er nun das Werk beginnt oder weiterführt, jeder wird von Gott den Lohn für seine Arbeit bekommen, der ihm zusteht. Wir sind Gottes Mitarbeiter, ihr aber seid Gottes Ackerland und sein Bauwerk. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Uh, thanks for gathering here in, in this space. And for those tuning in, uh, welcome uh, to this time each week that we pause collectively as a corporate body to worship and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. No children's uh, church or ministry today. Uh, so for the kiddos that are here, uh, you are stuck with me this morning. Uh, if I've never met you before, by the way, uh, or you're tuning in for the first time, uh, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. We're in the midst of a sermon series going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 3 of that book. A couple things, a couple more things before I pray and we dive into chapter 3. Uh, one big reminder, I know it's been said multiple times, but we will not be gathering in this space next Sunday. Uh, we will be up north at Covenant, Bi Covenant Pines Bible Camp for our retreat. Uh, if you were still interested in signing up for the retreat, it's actually too late. Uh, the doors of the kingdom have shut on the retreat, uh, so you will be on the outside where there's gnashing and weeping and, uh, and all that type of stuff. But we went back and forth uh, with um, what to do with the retreat, and we, uh, in light of kind of this new uh, wave of COVID that we are dealing with again, and we were able to communicate with some of the leaders at Covenant Pines Bible Camp come up with a, a good preparedness plan uh, for what we're going to do at the retreat, and so we have been able to move forward with that. If you're hanging back next week, uh, we will post uh, some type of throwback sermon on uh, the Sunday uh, service website uh, so that you can tune into that, or it would be great Sunday to gather with another church community in our city or to stream another church community. There's a lot of wonderful church bodies within our city uh, that it's just been a joy to partner with over the years, and it would be a great Sunday to do that as well. Um, obviously, 
probably for a lot of you, the, the reality of another COVID wave is probably something that's been front and center of your thoughts and your imagination, your conversations this week. And one of the things I'm going to do after the message is uh, just say a pastoral prayer with you all. So I, I instructed the AV team, by the way, uh, to keep the live stream going for a little bit longer after the sermon we usually cut. Uh, the live stream and then pivot to the second half of the service that is focused on the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, we're going to do a pastoral prayer, a corporate prayer together. Uh, and for those of you tuning in, please hang on because we want you to also be uh, a part of that prayer with us here in this space. So let's go ahead and pray uh, for the message and then we'll dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. So let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by and through your powerful word. Bring every one of our thoughts captive now to obeying Jesus Christ. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. It's a big deal uh, when you have kids, and for all of us, when we move from that stage as infants, where we're dependent on milk, to now being able to enjoy solid food. And if you've seen that happen before or have been a witness to that, it's fun to see how kids respond to certain foods when you're doing that, with, uh, foods that they've never experienced before. And one common and fun tradition that we did with our kids, and many of you have probably seen this or uh, have been a part of this, is where they turn one year old, right, and then you give them just a massive cupcake or like the biggest slice of cake on uh, the sheet cake that you can find, and you just put it on their high chair and let them do whatever they want with that thing. Because up until that point, you may have just transitioned them. They might be just a handful of months into uh, trying different solid foods and, and transitioning away from milk and, and starting to have more foods. And I know for us, when we did this, we might uh, introduce them to some sweet things like fruits or maybe some pieces of cookie here and there. But like that moment, it's just like this unreserved, like just go for it. Just have at it. So you get this big piece of cake, a massive cupcake. It's full of sugar, full of frosting, full of goodness. You get your kid down to the diaper because it's going to get real messy, right? And you just put that puppy there and you don't, you don't try to ration the thing anymore. You just stand back with your guests that you have there at the one-year celebration and everybody, and this is like, if you've been to this, like, uh, this is the highlight of the birthday party, right? Like, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for to see what happens when this kid, like, gets their hands on this and tries the frosting, tries the cake for the first time. We have one child in particular, uh, when we did this moment, who to this day has the biggest sweet tooth in our family. And when she took her first bite, I mean, she devoured that thing afterwards. It was quick. It was, she ate that thing so fast it would have impressed any teenager with the speed in which that she did this. And then when she was done with that, we brought the rest of the cake out for the rest of the guests and she's just pointing, mmm, mmm, because she wants more. Like, give me some more of that stuff uh, uh, that, that we are about to hand out for the guests. 
In this moment, uh, and if you've ever seen this happen, it's, it's so delightful because this new world of taste and delights open up for a child. And we know as adults that it's just getting started from there. They got other things coming that is, is solid food that is just pure goodness. They're going to enjoy some frozen custard someday, some cheesecake, and some cinnamon rolls from Isle Bun and Bakery. Anybody, can anybody testify, has had that before? That is amazing. It dropped right off of the marriage supper of the lamb into the world, my brothers and sisters. That stuff is good. And that's just the sweet stuff they're going to enjoy someday, some deep dish pizza, juicy Lucy burgers, a filet mignon, like these are the things that are coming at this child who is just starting to open up into this world of solid food. This is the metaphor that is in Paul's mind as he opens up chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. And it is a powerful one. It's one that we may have seen or experienced in the Christian life as we grow in our faith. It's something that you probably have seen happen to somebody if you have been walking alongside of somebody that's new to the faith or raising your children to know the Lord. So you can relate to this. You can relate to watching Christian kids start to transition from the basics of the Christian faith to deeper realities that increase their joy, or you lead a new believer to the, the foundation of the cross and the foundation of the Christian life, and then they start to go deeper and deeper into the solid food of God's glory, and they light up with joy. And those are the types of moments that we live for as believers, to see that type of growth, to see that type of satisfaction. And that's why the reverse is so discouraging. When somebody cannot handle the solid food of the gospel, but they are still immature in the faith and they can't move to that developmental phase and it's frustrating to see and that is exactly what Paul has in mind, is that type of frustrating scenario. Why do some people stay infants in Christ? Why aren't they ready for the deeper and rich, solid food of the gospel? What causes this to happen? And this, these are the types of questions that this passage is about to address. And these answers that he gives and the analogies that he uses and the, 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 the issues going on in the church of Corinth are incredibly relevant for what we are dealing with right now. So let's get into the text. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 4 with me. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not worldly. Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Paulus, are you not mere human beings? So what does Paul mean here when he addresses this local church of people as not as people who live by the Spirit, but people who are still worldly? What does he mean by that? Does he mean that they're not Christians anymore? That seems unlikely because he already addresses them as brothers and sisters. That He says that they are in Christ, but yet he calls them worldly. He says that they are infants. They are not people who live by the Spirit. So he's saying that there's inconsistencies in their life. 
They are in Christ, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, but they're not acting like it. Instead, they're acting worldly, or he says, like mere humans. And what he means by that is that you're just acting like a normal person that's never encountered the gospel, has never been filled with the Spirit, and even though those realities are true of you, you don't act like it. You have not gotten to the point that you're applying the gospel to all of life. You have not gotten the point that you've experienced the depth of God's glory that has blown you away, that makes you hunger and thirst after the depths of God's glory. You have not been to that point yet. They live like they know nothing about the gospel. And he illustrates that point, like we did in the opening of this message, as calling them infants, because they think that they're adults, but they're not. They're infants. They think that they're spiritual, but he says, no, you're just fleshy. You're worldly. You act like a human being that has never been filled with the Spirit. And what is his evidence for this claim? He draws on a couple examples. He says, they are a people not marked by fruit of the Spirit, but they're marked by jealousy and quarreling. They divide against one another, and they especially like to divide against one another based on the people, these human leaders, these Christian leaders that they follow. And they put their self-worth, they, they make themselves puffed up based on the people they associate with and based on who they follow, these human leaders, they're willing to break fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ in order to follow and emphasize those human leaders. And he's going to further illustrate these realities and these points by first showing us how Christian ministry is like a farm and then how it's like going to a construction site. So let's go to the farm first, verses 5 through 9. What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Paulus watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service." You are God's field, God's building. So he now focuses on this division due to their human-centered obsession with Christian leaders, which Paul wants to make a God-centered vision for Christian leadership and the church. And he illustrates it. He first starts with questions. You think Apollos is a big deal? You think me, Paul, is worthy of this type of adoration? Don't you remember who we are and who a Christian leader is? And he's trying to get them to think deeply about it. We're not a big deal. We're merely servants who are carrying out the task the Lord Jesus has assigned to us. And that's when he gets into the details of this farm analogy, this gardening analogy. He continues to use himself and Apollos as examples. Paul, he planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God, God is the one who is making it grow. Paul and Apollos have different roles, but they're not that much. They're not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. They're only planting. They're only watering. God is making it grow. 
In fact, a person who plants and a person who waters, they may have different tasks, they may have different callings, but they each serve one purpose, and that is the growth of the church that leads to harvest, and God is the one, and God alone is the one who is in charge and capable and powerful enough to grow the church. The diversity of talents all unite to serve that single purpose. So Christian leaders are co-workers in God's service, and the church is God's field. So Paul may have started the church, and then Paulus may have came along and nourished the church from there, but they are simply colleagues with one another. They're co-workers in service to God's purposes in the local church. It is God's field, and we are servants of God. And we are simply participating in that gospel growth. And God is using us as a means to that end. Now think about our life and our kind of moment as a modern church in light of the issues going on in Corinth. I mean, we can look on this side and read the letter and and be able to understand, man, following leaders in this humid-centered, prideful, boastful, divisive way, that's no good. That's no good. But don't think for a moment that the modern church doesn't have the same issues. We do. This problem still persists in the church today. We can even be more specific about the leaders that we follow because you can look at the podcasts that we listen to and maybe even literally the Christian leaders that we follow on social media to get an understanding of the types of Christian leaders that one has an affinity for. Now to be clear, and Paul is saying this too, it's not bad to be inspired by a Christian leader. In fact, it's, it's quite remarkable uh, to ha- be able to grow in a relationship with somebody that points you so well to Jesus and you d- establish this deep connection with that person, and that is a good and holy thing when it's put in its proper order. But the other thing, and you know this happens, and maybe you've contributed to it or have seen it happen, but they, it is a common experience to have this adoration for a Christian leader but then be so devoted to that person, so devoted to that person's ministry, their theology, that you will break fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ because they don't share that same adoration for that Christian leader. It happens all the time. Church splits happen because of a division in the modern church still happens because we have this this unrealistic, this ungodly, this unholy adoration for a human leader that has exalted so much that you will be willing to look down your nose at other churches and other Christians because they don't view that person the same way that you do. And what's sad about that is that you, when you do that, not only cause division within the church, but a Christian who does that also sets themselves up for a reckoning of their faith. And what I mean by that, and this is something that you see quite often, is we forget that human beings are at best flawed, but at worst incredibly deceptive. And they can 
project themselves to be one thing in the public eye, but then it comes out and revealed in another day that they are a completely different person, hypocritical, and they are brought down in the faith, they bring down their ministry, they bring down their church. And what happens when you assign such a high praise and high adoration to such a Christian leader and they let you down like that, what happens to the Christian heart? What happens to the individual that does that? What happens is this, you go into crisis mode. And you go into crisis mode because you're like, you put so much faith in this particular human being that if they were this flawed and this inconsistent and this hypocritical, then you start to doubt the entirety of the Christian faith. That happens, and it happens a lot. And one of the fundamental reasons that that happens to the church, both division and faith crisis, is because we forget that it's not about any one single Christian leader, denominational heritage, theological framework, but all these diverse things in God's kingdom are used for one purpose, to grow the church, and when that church growth happens in your heart or collectively as a church, you're supposed to go back to God, not the person, not the human being. It's Jesus Christ is the one who's righteous and he's not going to let you down. He's not going to be turned out to be a hypocrite someday. He is going to be faithful to you and kind to you and patient to you. And praise God that he uses Christian leaders to accomplish his purposes but put those Christian leaders in their proper place. They're simply servants of the Lord because it's all, at the end of the day, about the Lord. Now he turns from this analogy of the farm to a, a construction site, a building, uh, God's church as a building. Look at verses 10 through 15 for this other illustration. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the building, or the builder rather, will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So Paul affirms a similar point that he made with the farming illustration, that the whole project matters to God and we are just certain and different and diverse workers who accomplish that purpose. But now Paul is using this illustration at the construction site to make another point. And that point, that additional point is this, that church leaders, Christian leaders, are held to account for how they build the church. Christian leaders need to be careful and take care to build the church with the materials that God is calling us to use. Paul, again, points to himself that he laid a foundation for the church, and others came to build on that foundation, but he is very humble about, like, the foundation. He's like, well, what, what else was I going to lay as a foundation of the church other than the foundation of Jesus Christ? If you use any type of other foundation that you try to 
build a church or start a church on any foundation other than Christ, what you have in that situation is no longer a church. A church is defined by the foundation of Christ, and that's simply all that I do. And that's all that I did, is lay Christ as the foundation of the church. And when he did that, he said, everybody else has this experience too, that the church is founded on Christ, and then we come along and build on that foundation. And how we build on that foundation matters. The materials matter. And why do those materials matter? Because Paul says there's a day coming where fire will be used to reveal the quality of the work. And he lists six materials that have uh, uh, different types of material that will have a different type of enduring result in that day. He lists the materials of wood, hay, and straw that will be burned up, but gold, silver, and costly stones will survive, and those are the types of material that are used to build a temple. temple. Now Paul applies this imagery to Christian leaders, and he's envisioning this day then that Christian leaders, Christian leaders, and he doesn't define what type of Christian leaders, but think pastors and ministers and elders and deacons and ministry group leaders and ministry team leaders, like think of that, that there's a day that is going to come where they stand before the Lord and God uses, and here's the imagery, the metaphor, He reveals the quality of work like fire burning up a structure. And anything that we used that's the equivalent of wood, hay, and straw will be burned up in that day. But the types of material you use to build a temple, the gold, the silver, and the costly stones will survive. So this day is not a day where you're determining whether or not the Christian leader is saved or not. The text is clear. This person is saved. This person is justified. This person has been adopted into God's family. That's not what's at issue here. What is at issue is revealing what type of ministry this person had and whether or not they were building it in a way that honored God or not. And when this When the materials survive the fire, the text says they are rewarded on that day. And what is the reward? Well, the text doesn't say. Everybody in Christ is rewarded with God forever and ever and ever. Uh, But the Bible also teaches this idea of different degrees of rewards in heaven. And this text doesn't spell out what it is. It just simply mentions that is what's going to take place, in this case, with Christian leaders. The best explanation I've ever heard of the nature of these rewards come from a Puritan theologian named Jonathan Edwards, and he described it as like we're different cups uh, that hold hold, uh, liquid. And that's an analogy for him that each person has different capacities in heaven to enjoy God, and those capacities increase infinitely over time. But every single one of our cups are full in that day. We're completely satisfied, even though some cups are bigger than others and have different rewards and capacities than others, we still are full of joy in the Lord because of that day. And one of the things you you think with a reward like that or the explanation of rewards like that is like, well, if people had different sized cups and different capacities to enjoy God in a greater way, doesn't that mean there'd be jealousy and envy? But he says, well, you forget, this is the new heaven and new earth. Jealousy and envy doesn't exist anymore. In fact, when you see somebody that has greater capacities to enjoy God 
because of, in this case, the building materials that God has graciously led them to build the church with, your capacity to enjoy God will increase because it's, it's lovely and enjoyable and a beautiful thing to see somebody else enjoy the Lord. And forever and ever and ever, they will enjoy God forever. That's the way to think about it. So applying that analogy to this, there's a day that comes where some things will survive this fire and become a greater source of your capacities to rejoice in God's work through you, but there will be other things that are completely worthless that will never be a source for, God, for joy in God because they did not contribute to the growth of his church. And it raises the question in the here and now for every Christian leader and every ministry to ask the question, what are you building God's church with? God has, or Paul rather, has already highlighted the things that are going to burn. He's given us examples of the types of things that are going to burn in that day. Division, human-centered ministry based on personalities, focusing on worldly wisdom rather than the power of the cross, and over-dependence on church fads. These are the things that in that day will burn and they will not be worth anything, and you will not find more joy in God by reflecting on these things. But if you build a ministry using everlasting materials, then those things will be another source of joy in God forever and ever and ever. And for any church ministry and any church leader, that's where the focus needs to be, is on building the church with those everlasting God-centered materials of ministry. It's worship in all of life of the triune God, that God, the creator of all things, that, that now his world has been ruined by sin, is now redeemed in Christ and being restored by the Holy Spirit, that whole gospel story deserves our worship every moment of our life, not just when we meet corporately, but also when we scatter. So the worship is the type of material that builds God's church. Witnessing to the gospel is the type of material you want to use, where you bear witness to the cross and the resurrection and the message of the forgiveness of sins, and you take that message to your neighbor and to the ends of the earth. That's what you build the church with. You build the church with fellowship that's not dependent on human leaders, but that is grounded in love and sacrifice and service. You, you build the church by stewarding your vocations, both in the home and in the marketplace, so that you can use all your times and your talents, so that you can seek the common good of your city. You build the church through service that contributes to the pursuit of justice and mercy, both for the love of your neighbor and to those on the fringes of society. And when you practice those things as a church and you build the church using those materials, that is going to be a source of joy in that day when God judges you, where you can point to those things and say, God, look how you use those things to build the church. I don't need any credit for that. No human leader deserves any credit for that, but we rejoice that you used those materials and, the, and, the, and you brought forth life in the church because of that. And that's what we are building God's holy temple when we participate in that work. And that's why the stakes are so high. Look at what he says in verses 16 through 17. 
Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. The church is God's temple. That's what we're building. A community of people where God's presence dwells through the Holy Spirit because of the power of the gospel. That's what we're up to here in this church, and that's what the church is up to globally. And it's in light of this holy and precious reality that there is this legitimate warning that's not just, see, it wasn't just directed, that verse wasn't just directed at Christian leaders. He says it's for who? Anyone. Anyone who destroys the temple, that is not just some neutral act that you should shrug your shoulders at. This is God's sacred temple. So the people that start to go about their business of dividing against one another, making a ministry human-centered, and that leads to the downfall of a church, that is destroying the very temple of God, and God is not neutral in that act. He says, and he warns in this text, that if you destroy the church, God will destroy you. That's how high the stakes are, because God loves the church and wants to see the church built up and not destroyed. He lands the plane in verses 18 through 23, and that's where we'll conclude this message as well, where he'll start to remind us of some of the things he's been saying since chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, but then he's about to broaden it to a very large vision of God's gospel. Look at verses 18 through 23 with me. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is of God. He reminds us what he's been saying all along. The church shouldn't rely on worldly wisdom because worldly wisdom is foolishness in God's sight. They ought to instead be relying on the very wisdom of God by putting the message of the cross and the person of Christ at the center of everything that they do. And then he draws out the implication of the point he wants to make in this chapter. Stop boasting about Christian leaders. Stop making it about them. Just knock it off. And why should we stop it? He says, because all things are yours. Whether it's Paul, Apollos, Cephas, he starts listing off all the leaders that they are following and dividing over, and he's saying, why are you just being so narrow-minded that you focus on one? They're all yours. Every Christian leader that does great things for God, it's a source for greater joy and rejoicing in the work of God and the global church throughout the ages. Why are you so narrow to focus on one? And that we as Christians should broaden our own appreciation for the church in the same way. Look, I am a, a Christian that, that I, I am inspired and find myself more uh, in the Reformed tradition of the church and the Protestant Reformation and that God-centered theology that I have loved and cherished. But I don't just linger there. 
There's other traditions to be blown away by and to be ministered to by. But to think of like Pentecostals prayer meeting, to be rejoicing in that type of tradition, right? The, the Methodist circuit riders and the, their history and the Anglican church tradition of the daily office and their liturgy. There's just so much that other Christian leaders and denominations and theological traditions have contributed to the building up of God's temple that when you just focus on one sliver of it, you are selling yourself short, brothers and sisters. It's all yours. All of it. Appreciate it. Love it. And have it, have it be a source for joy in God's global cross-cultural work forever and ever and ever. But he doesn't just end there. He broadens it even more beyond human leaders. You see how he does that? He says that all things are yours, and he lists the human leaders, but then he says, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is of God. He's even saying that just to narrow it down to the, the beautiful praiseworthy understanding of church history that God uses different Christian leaders and different traditions for his purposes, that's even too narrow. Broaden it even more than that because it's not just all these things that are yours, but, but even, even life and the world and death and the present and the future, literally everything is yours. The world is going to be one day as it is in heaven. Your life is going to be everlasting because the life given in Jesus Christ. Death is defeated. In the present, God is working. And it's, it's, it's so amazing how that can minister to you right now because there's some stuff to be anxious about right now, brothers and sisters. There's some stuff that you're tempted to divide over uh, all these things that the Christian church is dealing with, COVID policies and political stresses or whatever. And, and, and so often in the present, we can just be focused on these human realities. But one of the things a text like this does is, brothers and sisters, broaden it. Even in this frustrating, burdensome, exhausting moment in our present life, God owns it in Christ. And you belong to Christ. And God is at work. And that's why we can still have hope for the future. Because we know the promise in Jesus Christ that we belong to is that God is renewing all things. This exhausted moment we find ourselves in in the present is only temporary. And there's nothing but hope that we can look forward to in that day. One of the ways I thought about what Paul is trying to do here is, is he's just trying to back up from our narrow focus of the Christian faith and just show you how big and wonderful and rich it is. It reminded me of this cartoon I used to watch. I'd come home from school, get off the bus, and around 3 o'clock there'd be all these uh, afternoon cartoons on uh, on the TV, and one of the ones I watched was of this wealthy duck uh, that Disney put out this cartoon, and he was so wealthy, I don't know if any of you watched this, he was so wealthy, he would swim in his coins, right? He would jump into like, this, this big bin of coins that he owned, and he would swim in it. Uh, we know that rich people nowadays don't do that, they build rocket ships to go to space. Um, but that was like this imagery of like, and I thought about that this week because 
It's just this, this picture of wealth and this grandness in that cartoon that I've always, has always stuck with me. And, then, and if I'm applying it to what Paul's trying to do here, is he wants us to see all that wealth in Christ because we often focus on just the pennies. Just the pennies. When there's infinite richness, if infinite renewal, infinite hope, infinite work that God is doing that we can focus on. So broaden your perspective, brothers and sisters in Christ, beyond human leaders, beyond the petty things that Christians divide over, and see everything that is yours in Jesus Christ, because it is all yours, because you belong to Jesus Christ. Now, before we cut that stream and uh, move to a time of communion, I wanted to uh, say a word of corporate prayer because if you're like me, and I know many of you feel this way, it's just exhausting again to have to deal with another wave of COVID and all that that brings to mind and the various things that we're dealing with as a society and a church and so on. And there's a lot of things that one could say about that, but rather than rehashing debates or data or things that we can talk about, I wanted to just pray about these things. Pray about the various ways that our, our church should be lifting up one another in prayer uh, so we can lament together and turn again our eyes to God in this exhausting moment to the wealth that we still have in Christ. So this is the way we're going to do it. Uh, we're going to just use some old school liturgy where I'll be saying sections of that prayer. And at the end of each section, I will say, Lord, in your mercy. And then you collectively say the phrase, hear our prayer. Let's practice. Lord, in your mercy. All right, and those two that are still streaming at home, please join us by saying the same thing. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we turn to you because you alone can make us dwell in safety. Lord, we pray for all those who are affected by the coronavirus. Through illness or isolation or anxiety, that they may find relief and hope. Lord, in your mercy. For public leaders who are guiding our cities and our nation at this time and those shaping policies for public health, we pray that they would make wise decisions for the common good. Lord, in your mercy. For doctors and nurses and medical researchers that through their skill and insights, many will be restored to health and that these medical professionals would be given strength and support as hospitals and clinics are overwhelmed. Lord, in your mercy. For our homes and families, our schools and young people, and all in any kind of need or distress, Lord, provide for them and give them perseverance. Lord, in your mercy. For the vulnerable and the fearful, for the gravely ill and the dying, that they may know your comfort and peace. Lord, in your mercy. And for our church, with all our burdens and sins, in Christ may we turn from fear to courage, from greed to generosity, and from self-centered focus to Christ-exalting service. We rest in the assurance of the gospel for the forgiveness of sins and hear your call to give and love wherever we are, whatever it costs, and for as long as it takes. Lord, in your mercy. We commend ourselves and all for whom we pray to the mercy and protection of you, God. Merciful Father, accept these prayers for the sake of your Son, 
our Savior Jesus Christ, and all God's people say, Amen.